Well, today we're uh, closing our study of the book of Titus. And so if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be in the, the final verses, verses 8 to 15. And, um, you know, we're a church that, that really believes in the Bible. And certainly at a, at a doctrinal sense, we believe in the truth of the Scriptures. But we also believe in the power of the Scriptures. And so our, our pattern is really just to, to march through books of the Bible. And we tend to kind of do a, a New Testament book than an Old Testament book. So uh, today we're closing the year uh, with this study of Titus. Um, and then next week, uh, the first week of the year, we're going to start into a study of the book of Malachi, the Old Testament book of Malachi. It's the last uh, book in the Old Testament. Um, and then we have a couple other things planned kind of leading up to Easter. So I think it's going to be a good year, but uh, we'll dive into Malachi uh, next week. But I'm, I'm grateful for this final passage of Titus. I think there's really good news for us. Let me pray one more time for us, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, we do just... Uh, Thank you for a great year. It's been a great year here in 2023. You've done wonderful things in our midst. We've seen new faces added to the church, and we're just delighted about the different ways that you're moving in our midst. Lord, as we turn to 2024, we're hopeful and encouraged about the things you have for us in the coming years. Lord, we think we're going to hire a new student pastor, and we just pray for that process as we're narrowing those candidates uh, Lord, we're, uh, we're going to step into a strategic planning process, and we ask for your hand over that. But, Lord, we just pray that this church would be faithful in this community. We pray that we would be true to this conviction to be broken people, loving broken people, as we dive into the new year. But, Lord, for today, as we close this study, it's been so uh, straightforward and clear on how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to do ministry. I pray, Father, that uh, our church would be marked by these convictions that are laid out in Titus. And so, Lord, as we reflect upon this final charge, uh, I pray that we would embrace it, that we would evaluate our lives, and that we would uh, really be committed to good doctrine and good deeds. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, last words, final words uh, that, that people say uh, tend to kind of fall into a few different categories. Sometimes they're kind of silly. Uh, sometimes uh, they're, they're more sweet, and, and then sometimes they're more substantive. Uh, I had fun this week kind of looking at some, uh, some quotes of, of famous people and, or funny things that they said at the end. Uh, for example, Groucho Marx, uh, which was an early comedian, as he lay dying and he was in a lot of pain uh, at the end, his last words were, this is no way to live, which is pretty good. Um, there was a guy named James Rogers, and uh, he was a murderer, and he was up in Utah, and they caught him, and they put him in front, of fi- uh, in front of a firing squad, which is not funny. But his final statement was that they asked for a last request, and he said, bring me a bulletproof vest, which that is funny. That's pretty good. Uh, sometimes final words are, are more sweet and, and tender. Um, the uh, Arthur Cannon Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes uh, books. As he lay dying, he looked over at his wife and simply said, you're wonderful, and then passed away. Uh, the late, great John Wayne, as, as he lay dying, uh, he was having trouble remembering certain things at the end of his life, and his wife asked him if he remembered her, if he knew who she was, and he said, of course, I know who you are. You're my girl, and I love you. But sometimes final words are, are, are more substantive. They're really on, okay, a focus on, and sometimes maybe like a charge on what is most important in life. The blues singer, Bessie Smith, she died saying, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. That's a pretty good way to go out. 
If, uh, if you remember Michael Landon, he was, a, he was an actor, and he had a very uh, painful uh, death with cancer at the end of his life, and he was in a lot of pain, and his son said, it's okay for him to leave them now. And Landon said, you're right, it's time, I love you. And Harriet Tubman, I love Harriet Tubman, and I didn't know that she lived till 1913, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. She lay with, uh, dying with all her family around her, and, and they were singing some of the old spirituals. They, they, they sang, sweet, uh, swing low, sweet chariot. And then she said, give my love to the churches. Tell the women to stand firm. I go to prepare a place for you. Final remarks like that are a charge really to major on the majors. Because all of our life can... It can be a distraction. We can get sidetracked looking at the minors, the things that are, that are unimportant. And those unimportant things can really be destructive sometimes. So when we want our loved ones to focus on what is most important. We, we want them to not settle for the trivial things, the things that pull us away from, from what is important. That, that's kind of the tone of these final verses here in Titus. This is his final charge. In fact, it's an, an insistence. He uses the word that I insist of these things. So, so there's a tone to this that he insists that with God's grace that we be devoted to what is good. Titus 3, 8 to 5 is really important because we tend to get sidetracked by the things that are unimportant. We tend to get sidetracked by the things that are bad, but also get sidetracked just by the, by the foolish things. And listen, our flesh, the demonic realm, the world itself, it can all justify what is foolish. And when we embrace what is foolish, the word he's going to use here is warped. Our lives become warped. They're like a bad tire that's just off. It doesn't run smoothly. It gets wobbly and deformed. Therefore, we need to return to this theme, this theme of the book of Titus, which is to be devoted to good doctrine and good deeds. And this is what he's going to insist upon. This is his final insistence upon you today to be devoted to good doctrine and good deeds. And then he's going to remind us to do it via his grace. Paul's going to return to this theme in his closing remarks. And again, this is a firm charge. This isn't a casual thing. There's there's an urgency like dying words, like final words. This is what is most important. Focus on what is good. The first thing I want you to see from verse 8 is that God insists on devotion to good doctrine, and to good deeds. Verse 8 says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He opens by saying, This saying is trustworthy. Of course, that raises the question, Well, what, what saying? What's he talking about? Specifically, I think he's referring to the previous seven verses But I think more generally, he's kind of referring to the entire book. So if you look back at those previous seven verses, it's all about uh, remembering to extend grace to others by remembering that God has extended grace to you. So you're to be submissive to authorities. You're, You're to be courteous towards your peers. You're to be gracious to others because God has extended grace to you. That saying is trustworthy. But more generally, the theme of the book is all about uh, being devoted to good doctrine and good deeds, and including understanding how those things relate. So it's not uh, doctrine and deeds are somehow divorced from each other. They actually are meant to sync with each other. In fact, if your doctrine doesn't lead to, to good deeds, you're doing it wrong. That's the point of Titus, is to bring these things together. So he's reiterating this here at the end, and he's saying that is trustworthy. 
And in fact, he's demanding it. He's noticed that he's insisting upon it. There's force here. But he gives a reason for this insistence. He says in verse 8, So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So by remembering the grace that has been extended to you, and then you're gracious to other people, and, and by remembering to, to do all that accords with sound doctrine, Titus 2.1. But by living that way, what, it, what he says here is that helps other pe- people be devoted to good works. Again, he returns to that theme, but he highlights how what you believe and how you live, that affects other people. His point is, is that that affects other people. So if you have a real kind of laissez-faire view of, of your beliefs and, and your doctrine and your conviction that doesn't really inform your life, that's going to influence the people that you love the most, the people that you influence the most, your family, your friends, your children. If that's your approach to life, you're going to see it in their lives. And if your life is not marked by, by good works, by good deeds, there's not evidence of that in your life. Again, the ones that you influence the most, they're going to see that and their lives are, are going to follow that example. But, but living faithfully then is worth it. But look again at verse 8 and notice that final sentence. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You see, faithful lives are beautiful lives. Faithful lives are helpful lives. Like Those are the types of lives that inspire other people. Those are the types of lives that, that benefit other people. So, so if you embrace this in your life, He's saying your life is going to be excellent. It's going to be profitable. In other words, people are going to be grateful for you. As I thought of examples of this in my life, of just people that I've seen um, a couple of Sundays ago, I was uh, at a restaurant. We were, we were having lunch, and, and I looked over, and there was this huge table of people. It was a big family together. And, and I looked over, and it was a guy who was one of my Sunday school teachers when I was a kid growing up. And, and he was there with his kids, all his kids, all his grandkids, and it was just a happy scene. If you're a grandpa, it was a happy scene. This was his happy place. And students, you might know this guy a few years ago. We did a lake day, and we had some boats out. This guy brought his boat out, okay, and he dragged you guys around the lake. But this guy, it was kind of a neat moment for me watching it all because they were there celebrating his granddaughter who had just gotten baptized. And they were just loving on her and focusing on her. And she was about the age that I got converted and got baptized. And this man was really impactful for me on on being converted. As one of my early Sunday school teachers, uh, I I remember him giving a a creative illustration about the gospel. That's what's so fun about Redeemer Kids. We get to do all this kind of goofy stuff down there and creative stuff. And I don't remember all the ins and outs of it, but he was using my favorite cookie. He was using an Oreo cookie. It's probably why I remember it. But he was just talking about how we have insides and outsides, and that's all that I got from it, and I got an Oreo cookie out of it. But I do remember it. And and it had an impact on me. And and him sharing his testimony was just one of these little things that kind of led me towards saving faith in Christ. I went up to him, and we just talked for a little bit. And uh, he's so encouraging. He's such a kind man. And and as I walked away, I I thought about his life. And I thought, you know, probably for a lot of people, they think that that guy is a a boring person or lived a boring life. He He was a good fire chief here in the community, a faithful member of his church. Nobody's going to make a movie about that, okay? But, but he had, he's lived a beautiful life. He's lived a very inspiring life. He, he's lived a, a selfish, uh, an, an unselfish life. He's lived for other people. He's helped his family. He, everyone at that table are grateful for him. He, and he lived for them. And in the end, he picked up the bill for all of them. 
Like that's what a good grandpa does. That's inspiring. That's helpful. That's excellent. That's profitable. Friends, the vision that Titus gives in this book is for the good life. This is the excellent, profitable life. This book has been, I think, simple. It's kind of been really straightforward at points. But what he's getting at is this is how to live an inspiring, helpful life. Be devoted to good doctrine and good deeds. However, that's the positive command. To get there, there's some things that you're supposed to avoid. God insists we also avoid some ideas and some people. Look at verses 9 to 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The good, beautiful, useful, it needs to be protected. And so what God has done here is he's given us this positive charge to live a certain way. But he, he now gives us this negative charge. What he says here is that there are ideas that pull us away from good doctrine and good deeds. And he also says, and we need to be very clear here, there are people. There are people that distract us from what is excellent and what is profitable. That's hard to hear for our ears in this culture, right? We're a culture that esteems more than anything tolerance. There's a lot of great things about tolerance. But also there are ideas to be avoided. And there's people to be avoided. The Greek term here for avoided is about encircling. And it's kind of the image of, okay, you kind of circle the wagons, if you will, to protect what is on the inside. That's what it means to avoid. It's an issue of exclusion and inclusion. He's saying, listen, there are certain things to be excluded. There are ideas that are bad. There are ideas that, 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 that are, are useless and, and harmful, and we need to exclude from those. Another word, a synonymous term uh, for avoid is shun. There are certain things that we are to shun. That sounds super harsh, again, for, for our culture. But if you go back to your mom's wisdom, my, my mom used to say, you are who you surround yourself with. She's right, isn't she? Like, like there's real wisdom in that. You are who you surround yourself with including the ideas that you surround yourself with. Now, now, practically, I think what this means is that we should be friends with everyone, but our closest friends. They should be the ones that help us go deeper in our walk with the Lord. In other words, our best friends, they should be the ones that sharpen us and encourage us to the Lord. That's what he's getting at here. Listen, you can't trust everyone to help edify you spiritually, right? Right? That means that you can't trust everyone to be like your best friend. But when you find someone that, that spurs you on in your walk with the Lord, go deeper in that relationship. Listen, that's about friendship, but also that, that's how you find a spouse, okay? Like you just run at Jesus 100 miles an hour, and, and you look to your right or left. Who's keeping up with you? Who's, who's spurring you on in that race? And that's how you find a good friend, and that's how you find a spouse. And when people pull you away from the Lord, create some space with them. However, he says that we are first not to avoid people, but to avoid or shun certain ideas. Look again at verse 9. But avoid, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
What he's saying here is that there are some ideas that are foolish. They're mindless. They're shallow. They're destructive. Guys, sometimes you're going to have ideas that pop in your head, and it's a dumb idea. Okay? So there's nothing profound. When you have that idea that pops in your mind, and you think it's just to play with this, I'm supposed to chase this. Maybe there's something profound here. Maybe it's just dumb. Maybe it's just dumb and move on from it. Okay? Some ideas are, are just dumb. Some philosophies are just untrue. Some philosophies are unwise and they're immature. Some ideas are harmful and dangerous, right? Ask a Jewish person about Nazism and, and you'll learn about ideas that, that are dangerous, right? Paul was speaking to certain controversies that, that were a waste of time to think about, a waste of time to write about and to address. They were superficial. They were silly debates about genealogy. Who's related to who? What are the impacts of this? It, it didn't matter. In fact, it, it pulled away from the important debates. Some ideas and issues and debates are, are worthy of our time, and some are not. And let me give you some ways to maybe think through this. I, I think this is a helpful image. That, that some doctrines uh, we hold with an open hand, and some doctrines uh, we hold with a closed hand. And what that image is meant to say that, listen, th there are some doctrines that, listen, we can agree to disagree on. We can still be Orthodox Christians. We can be in fellowship together. We can be in the same church together. This is an open-handed doctrine that we can disagree on. Look this up if you don't know this jargon, but I am a, a progressive premillennial dispensationalist. That's my categories, okay, on like end time stuff. Now, we've had people on staff here at this church, wait for it, be careful, they're all millennialists. Uh-oh, they think different things about the millennial kingdom, okay? We can serve on staff together. We, we can be in leadership together. We can be in the same church. That's an open-handed doctrine, okay? Now, if you're a pan-millennialist, it'll pan out in the end, you, you're not in leadership with it. You don't care about it enough to form an opinion. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying it's an open-handed issue. But there's some issues that are closed-handed. Like we've never had a, uh, someone in leadership in this church or on staff of this church who's not an inerrantist. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. That's a closed-handed issue for us. That, that, that's more important. And so as we look for a student pastor, as we're looking for right now, if they answer that question wrong in the question, they're not an inerrantist, we just take them off the list. I, I don't even call them back, okay? We just take them off the list. But another way of thinking about these is maybe not in two categories, but in three. And I actually find this more helpful. Because sometimes there's doctrines that are essential, and then there's some on the other end that are just not even, maybe not as important. But then there's kind of this middle category. Maybe it's not essential, but it's really, really important. So, so like essential doctrines are the exclusivity of Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Do you believe in Christ alone, solus Christos, as essential? Listen, if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. That's essential doctrine. But then there's, there, there's maybe this middle category. Because as a church, we, like, we have to organize in certain ways, okay? We have to do baptisms a certain way. We have to uh, have leaders, and they have to do certain things. We have to know who should be in leadership. And so, so those are discussions that we can agree to disagree on, but at the end of the day, we got to function as a church. So doctrines are issues of ecclesiology or doctrine of the church. They're really important, not, not for your salvation, but they're also really important because we've got to function together. But then there's this third category again of, of things that are, that are less essential and less important. Like we, at our church, we can agree to disagree on different political ideas. 
Like you don't have to hold all my weird theories about like a progressive tax code to be in this church, okay? Like, like, like we can have uh, different uh, understandings of those things. We can uh, agree uh, to disagree on different things that are uh, ethically focused and so forth. But, but at the end of the day, there are things that are essential. There's maybe this middle category of not as essential uh, and then things that, that are less important. But friends, here's the challenge. It takes great wisdom and discernment or know how to fit things into those categories. We need to know how to respond to certain controversies and debates and genealogies, which means we need to know how to put things in certain categories. And shepherds, if you're a leader in this church, that's part of your shepherding ministry. To say, you know what? This is just something that's unimportant. And we're not going to spend the time writing a white paper on what we think. on. It's just less important. This is the important stuff. That's part of shepherding. And it's, and it's important because, again, in verse 9, it says that some ideas lead to divisions and quarrels. That's why this is so essential. Because some of these ideas can lead to divisions and quarrels. As, as I've kind of looked over the landscape of things in, in our country right now, uh, it's important to understand that divisions and quarrels can still happen today. Okay, For, for two or three generations two denominations in particular, more than this, but Episcopalians and Methodists, they have embraced bad doctrine for two or three generations. They've just swallowed a lot of liberal, progressive uh, things that are just bad doctrine. And what it's led to is division and decline in those movements, okay? I don't always like running people down, but it's important to highlight these things. Uh, at, At the end of the year, it looks like about a quarter of United Methodist churches are leaving that denomination, and the reason is, is because they, they have abandoned sound doctrine, okay? I know great Methodist churches, okay? But also most of them, according to that, are, are not teaching sound doctrine. They, they, they have uh, embraced doctrine that is not faithful to the Scriptures. And it's led to great division um, in those churches and, and in those uh, communities. It's led to great quarrels. Finally and quickly, many of those Foolish ideas are in this category of quarrels about the law is what he talks about. So really what he's getting at here uh, is gospelless legalism. I have a friend who, uh, he puts this on social media every year. He says that for Lent, I'm giving up popish legalism. It's kind of snarky, but he's got a point, right? Okay, he, he's, we don't need to be legalistic about certain things about certain ideas. Like, listen, if you want to practice Lent, you can practice Lent. But, but you shouldn't lay that on everybody. Okay, You shouldn't be legalistic about something like that that, that is extra biblical. There's a lot of things that we can put in those categories, but that is, is what the apostle is very sensitive to, that they not get distracted uh, uh, by divisive things and legalistic things. The reason we're to do this wise work is because foolish ideas, verse 9, are unprofitable and worthless. In other words, um, uh, this is, they're not healthy, okay? And listen, uh, there's a place for both uh, principled speculative theology as well as practical functioning practices, okay? And the whole book of Titus, for the record, is not to pit these two things together, but to say your doctrine drives your deeds. Those things are supposed to go together. So you're not supposed to pit them together. You're not to say, listen, I'm the theology guy. I don't care about all the practical stuff. Or I'm the practical guy and all the theology stuff doesn't matter. You're, we're supposed to have wisdom on how those things fit together. But in the end, 
if they don't fit together in the right way, it's going to lead to unproductive spiritual lives and ministry. That's part of why it's emphasized so much. Someone who embraces all this unhealthy, divisive stuff, it's going to lead to an unproductive spiritual life in church. Foolish ideas can lead to Christians adding no value to the kingdom of God. You know who they are. Yeah, there's people in your life, right? She starts listening to that certain podcast, and then five years later, her, her life is further away from the Lord, right? Therefore, we need to circle the wagons and avoid certain foolish, divisive people. And in fact, look again at 10 and 11. Here's what we're supposed to do there. As for people who stir up division, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is Matthew 18. This is just church discipline right here, right? I found that... Um, Sometimes I don't have a good answer to some questions. And I found that sometimes I'm not well-versed in certain issues. And many times I should know a better answer. And I should take the time and energy to learn those issues. But many times it's just a capacity issue for me. I just don't have the ability and the mental energy to like be better and know everything about that issue. And I'm sorry that there's limits uh, to me, for, for some of you, maybe in some of those er- areas. However, sometimes we need to be careful that we're not just stirring up division over issues that just are not essential, okay? We, we don't have to post about every headline. But like it can be a very virtuous thing to not hyperventilate about every issue. I have uh, increasing peace about not having to respond to every headline on social media. Doesn't mean we don't respond to anything. But it takes wisdom to know how to navigate it all. We need to be careful not to be divisive. And in fact, what God's Word is getting at here in verse 10 is if someone is causing that type of division, especially over non-essential things and gospel-less things and legalistic things, then those around them are to start walking down a church discipline path. Do you see that, leaders? Do you see that that's how we're to respond to that? This is part of the shepherding ministry of a church. Churches that let silliness lead to division, they're unhealthy churches. Again, verse 11, they're warped. There's something twisted and off about their thinking. They're like that tire that just doesn't run smoothly anymore. Shepherds protect the flock of God from ideas and people that are warped and sinful. That's your final charge. That's the final thing that he says to to this young pastor and elder. He says, protect the flock of God from people and ideas that are warped and sinful. That's a high calling, isn't it, leaders? I think that's a very high calling. But be encouraged. Look at his closing. But God promises grace. Verse 12 says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so, so as uh, to help uh, cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Verse 15, all who, uh, who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. And then finally, grace be with you all. I love this kind of final greeting because it really gives us kind of a window into that, that New Testament ministry, what it, what it really looked like. Titus, like many of Paul's other epistles, they were likely these circular letters that were, 
that where he writes a letter and then sends his disciples out to the different churches. I think what's going on in verse 13 is Zenos and Apollos. They, they've delivered this letter, letter to Titus, uh, but, but they're also probably delivering other letters to other people and, and, and other churches. So are on this mission to kind of uh, equip the church. However, Paul also makes this comment in verse 13, see that they lack nothing. Now, th- this could mean that that he wanted uh, Titus to make sure they had what they needed kind of for the next leg of their mission. But what I probably think is going on here is that he also meant that, that Zenos and Apollos were fundraising. So, so they were, that fundraising was, was a key part of New Testament church ministry. And usually they were fundraising for a couple of different things. They were fundraising, uh, in this case, to, to help start new churches. So there was kind of a church planting piece of it. And then there's this piece of it uh, to really help materially Christians who were suffering. They might have been suffering because of a drought or or something that was going on. Many times it was because they were persecuted, so they were suffering material, so they were fundraising uh, to help the churches. But, But fundraising was an important part of the New Testament ministry. The older I'm getting, I'm seeing how important fundraising is. As the pastor of our church, as I'm coaching church planters now, we're really emphasizing the importance of, of fundraising. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, our, our church hadn't launched yet, and, and we were meeting in, in another church here in town, and uh, their pastor was very sweet and generous to us. They allowed us to meet on Sunday night, and we were meeting in their building, and, and they, I mean, they were charging us something, but it was like, I don't even think it covered the electricity, okay? And, and you know how this conversation goes. Like, there becomes this debate of, like, what's the best use of God's money? Because we were about to launch the church, we were going to be in a school, we're going to have to spend thousands of dollars every month to meet in that school as a public place that people would draw to. We need to meet. On, we felt like it was important to meet on Sunday morning. Then we had this option, and again, I think it was like fifty dollars a week that we were meeting in this church. Okay, and so some of the older men said, "Hey, I I think you ought to go talk to the pastor and see if we could just keep meeting here, and maybe we don't uh, launch into a school." And this pastor, very sweet man, very generous man. Before he was a pastor, he was a lawyer, so he could turn that on when he needed to. And so I scheduled a meeting with him. I walked in, and before I said anything, it was really funny. He goes, hey, if you're here because some of the guys in your church want you to just like keep meeting here because it's so cheap, my answer to you is no. And the reason is is because ministry costs money. And he said, you need to go tell your guys that they, if they really believe in this church, they need to give to this church and help this church develop and go through the stages just like our guys did it in this church and just like every other church does. You go tell them ministry costs money. Yes, sir. And I just kind of turned around and walked out. Um, but he was right. Ministry does cost money. Listen, I, I see it in our church. I see it in these church plants that we coach. If they're underfunded, it affects the effectiveness of their ministry. Fundraising was a key part of that ministry. But, but, but I want you to see one more mark of Paul's ministry in the early church. The, this letter's written to Titus. But, but in the greeting, he references all these other people. Paul was surrounded by people that he was pouring into. Ministry is ultimately not about money. It's not about buildings. It's not about campaigns or plans and programs. It's about people. Ministry is about people. That's what we see in, in, in Paul's ministry. Shepherds, listen. It's important to do planning. We ask you to put together a budget and develop ministry and build buildings. All those things, they're important. But always remember that at the end of the day, ministry is about real people that God has called us to shepherd and to disciple. However, your shepherding is never done alone. And it's never to be done in your own strength. And that's where he lands in this book. 
Shepherds, he's given you some high callings. He's really, I think, raised the standard for all of us of what we're supposed to be about. And it can be intimidating. But in the end, in verse 15, he says, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the face. Grace be with you all. He closes with a benediction. He closes with this kind of parting blessing. It's a reminder, but it's also a prayer. Paul's given young Titus these clear, daunting admonitions. Throughout this this whole book, God has charged him over and over again to be faithful and then be fruitful out of that faithfulness. Hold to sound doctrine and and, and be an advocate for good deeds. However, he leads with, he, he leaves him with, don't do it alone. You're not alone in that. You don't have to do it out of your own strength. God's grace is with you. His mercy empowers you. God promises His grace. Shepherd, isn't isn't that a great place to land? Isn't that good news? That even though you have this high standard, God's mercy and grace is with you every step of the way. Listen, with that closing emphasis upon God's grace, are, are there good things that are getting in the way of the great things in your life? Are you getting sidetracked? Maybe it's an idea. Maybe it's a person. Are you making non-religious things your religion? Are you making non-essential things essential? Is something in your life dragging you in the wrong direction away from the Lord? The best way to answer those questions is, is by doing kind of a genuine evaluation of your life. Are you truly devoted to good doctrine and good deeds? You see, if you don't see genuine themes of good doctrine in your life, you might be majoring in the minors. Like if you're really honest about your life and you don't see themes of good deeds, you might have people who are influencing you away from the Lord. Do you see that? Like, listen, if Titus 3, 8 to 15, if it's shining maybe a light in some corner of your life, then how do you need God's grace to help you in that moment? Because listen, if, if you're there, don't wallow away in shame. Like Embrace God's grace in that moment. Accept His grace if you're there. If you've struggled in one of these areas, do you need His merciful help to help you build new habits and approaches? Listen, the gospel is that He has given us grace. Now go walk in that grace. Never forget Titus 2, uh, 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Are you declaring it? Are you declaring it to yourself? Uh, I'll close with this. Uh, Young people, all all the data is showing that in your generation, your generation is rejecting God, the gospel, and the church at, at dramatically higher rates than every generation in this country before you. The, the, the history is, is the data shows that the majority of Americans for the history of our country have said that they were Christian. In fact, they've said that they've been part of a particular denomination. I don't know I'm a Christian, I'm a Presbyterian. 
And then they've said they've regularly attended a particular church. That's most of the people in the history of our country until about the year 2000. And then those things started to change, and now it's only about 30% fit in those categories. Now listen, that's sad. That's sad, but that's also really scary. And it's really scary because when people walk away from God and Christianity and Christian community in a local church, what ends up happening is, is they still have that spiritual hole in their heart. And they start trying to fill it with other things. And that's when it gets scary. Our culture has a soul problem. Young people, Cardinal Dolan says that even those who say they no longer believe in God, they have to have a God. He's right. Like, like we are filling our spiritual hole with things that cannot fill that hole, young people. That's why that's scary. It's sad, but it's scary. Pascal said that this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite, immutable object. You have a soul problem that's not going to be fulfilled and not going to be filled by things that aren't spiritual. Listen, politics is important, but it's a poor religion. Superstition will not satisfy you. Pursuing justice and saving the environment, those are worthy pursuits, but they're not going to make you holier and happier. You're not going to end up looking more like Jesus if you do those things divorced from the gospel. Augustine was right when he said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Young people, Titus is about where you can find abundant life. Your generation is rejecting this. But what God is saying is this is how you find abundant life, the worthy life, the excellent life. Like, listen, keep up with politics, but it makes a poor religion. Like, find a cause for yourself. I have a cause that I'm really passionate about. Give money to it, give time to it, but do it within the boundaries of the Word of God and empowered by God's grace. It's good news to be devoted to good doctrine and good, need, good deeds. That's good news. It's excellent. It's worthy. It it's matters, and it's worth it. Insist on these things. Go back to Titus 3, 1-7. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Hear that good news, Titus uh, 3.7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's better than anything this world has to offer. That's what's excellent. That's what's worthy to give your life to. So through his grace, be devoted to the good. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for this book and this study. I know it's been really challenging to me, and I hope it has been to others. Lord, we're just grateful that uh, you have shown us the way, that, that you have uh, given us something that is, um, you've given us something that is true and good, that we, that we don't have to chase all the things of the world. Lord, we uh, thank you that you have just given us truth. You've given us good doctrine. May, may we be a church that is committed to good doctrine. But Lord, may it not just be this, uh, this quarreling 
divisive speculation, but may it lead to, to good deeds. We want to be a blessing to this community. So Lord, help us to be devoted. I know you insist upon it. Help us to be devoted to good doctrine and good deeds. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.